One thing I've noticed much more over the last three months is the change of the seasons. I wonder if sometimes we we live life so quickly that actually, apart from the obvious things like thunderstorms and um, if it goes really hot or really cold, we don't notice the subtle changes that are going on round about us. On the screen at the moment, there should be a picture of a mountain range. And on one side of it is the mountain range in winter. And on the other side is the mountain range in summer. Both sides are the same mountains, but you climb them in a very different way. If you're going up in winter, it's treacherous, it's dangerous. If you go in summer, well, relatively speaking, it's fairly straightforward. So we're going to look at a passage of Hebrews this evening that is looking at two different mountains. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18, down to the end of the chapter, verse 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's take a moment to pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we invite you to speak to us through your word this evening. We pray that as we look at these these two contrasting mountains in this chapter, that you'll really encourage us to keep going in our faith in your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name we ask. Amen. Two mountains, one God. First reading, um, this passage is not the most easy passage in the book of Hebrews to decipher. And you can find yourself reading it and thinking, well, actually, what is all this about? What is all this talk of gloom and tempests? It all sounds a little bit alarming. But actually, true to the rest of the letter, true to what the writer of the Hebrews has been doing time and again, what he's doing is really taking the two covenants, the old covenant under Moses and the new covenant through the blood of Jesus the Messiah, and comparing and contrasting them. So here, it's done through two mountains. And the first one is Mount Sinai. But before we look at this mountain, it's worth mentioning, actually, the writer's point here. The point is, and it's a good news point, we don't have to approach God anymore, as in these first few verses. So just hold that in your thoughts as we look at verses 18 to 21. 
Although Sinai isn't mentioned by name by the writer of the Hebrews, it is pretty obvious, I think, what the writer is talking about. If you want to check out some of the events of what he's referring back to, look at Exodus 19 to 20. It's where Moses encounters God on the mountain. And it's at the point where he receives the Ten Commandments. And the people of Israel in the wilderness, they can't approach the mountain because of the terrifying presence of the Lord. And so we get all these these fearsome um, sort of imagery here about storms and trumpets and begging that the voice of God will stop speaking because it's so overwhelming to be in the presence of the holiness of God. Being overwhelmed in life generally, it can be a positive thing, but it can also be a hugely negative emotion. You know, when we're positively overwhelmed, if somebody is really kind to you or somebody says something really nice, you, you may feel overwhelmed in a good way. But sometimes we can feel overwhelmed and, it, and it's a very negative sort of feeling. I don't know if you've ever had the situation where you wake up in the morning and you look at your to-do list for the day and you think, goodness me, I don't think I will ever, ever get through all of this. Or perhaps there's a task in front of you and you think, this is just overwhelming, I can't do this. Every year, at about this time of year, I have um, a telephone conversation with an accountant um, who I use for sort of tax advice. Because as a, as a minister, there are all kinds of tax um, sort of things that I have to do and allowances that I can claim for. And it's all very complicated. And to me, it's all quite sort of mind-blowing and overwhelming. And so every year when this phone call approaches, I get this sort of inner sinking feeling. And I put this date in my diary and it's always the date for doing my tax figures. And I know that I've got a day spent with a calculator, with bank statements, with all kinds of receipts. And it just overwhelms me. And then I speak to the person at the other end of the phone and they love this stuff. And I just thank God that actually we're all different, aren't we? And that what overwhelms me to them is actually something that is quite good. But the overwhelming nature of Sinai is essentially one of intense fear at the holiness of God. His purity, he is so unlike us as broken, sinful, rebellious beings. And the writer's point is that God's holiness is unmanageable and unapproachable without appropriate cleansing. You can't just wander up the Mount Sinai. You can't just wander up and say a quick hello to God and come back down again. The holiness of God is so fearful and so consuming that actually even the animals, even animals that can't sin in the human sense of the word, when they approach the mountain, they have to be destroyed. Holiness, the purity of God that we cannot approach with our sin and our brokenness. Even Moses, God's appointed leader, says, I tremble with fear. I don't know what you make of these images at the start of this chapter. It seems to me to sound rather like something out of a Hollywood movie. So what do we do with them? Well, you know, God has not changed since Mount Sinai. There is a temptation, I think, sometimes to to read the Old Testament and think somehow God has moved on from these times and that he's changed. And that the God of terror in verses 18 to 22 is nothing like the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this has led to some people through the history of the church actually saying things like, well, the Yahweh of Old Testament times is a different God to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All equally alarming that God's character has changed as the scriptures unfold. You know, I would, I would say we need to put those ideas firmly to one side. 
God hasn't changed. This is the God that we approach in worship. A holy God, an awesome God. A God who without a mediator is to be feared in the kind of way that we experience on Sinai. Without a cleansing sacrifice, God remains distant and unapproachable. And we must never take lightly the holiness, the otherness of God. And so Sinai here becomes the symbol of the Old Testament covenant of law and sacrifice with the backdrop of the awesome nature of God. I think if we lose that sort of concept of the fearful holiness of God, actually it can lead to cheap grace. It can lead to us becoming blasé about sin. Isaiah One of the great Old Testament prophets, it says in Isaiah 6, and this is a beautiful reading, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the door stops and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, but I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And what we find in that chapter of Isaiah is that the presence of God ruins Isaiah. He realises his unworthiness, his uncleanliness before the awesome holiness of God. And as the passage continues, Isaiah actually receives cleansing from the altar of the Lord. So what should our response be to the first mountain in this chapter? I don't know about you, but when I when I see something of the nature of the holiness of God, of the purity of God, in the words of the hymn writer, that thou, my gods, would die for me, simply becomes an overwhelming thing in a really positive sense. The God who is so unlike me, so unlike you, would come in flesh and die for us so that we could know him and approach him, not like this, not through fear in this sense, but through Christ is quite overwhelming. You see, the good news of this passage is that we don't have to approach God through a Sinai experience. But we come to God through the completed work of Jesus. Christ has taken our sin. We don't fear impending doom as we approach God. And so as we approach through Christ, the mountain view shifts. We approach God as friends, his children, and we're brought close into the holy place. And so we come to the second mountain in this chapter, and this is Mount Zion. Zion, the city of David, the the central part of Jerusalem, where the temple was still standing, we think, at the time when Hebrews was written. But here, this is not the earthly Jerusalem. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. And instead of overwhelming fear, we can now approach God through overwhelming confidence because of what Jesus has done. Instead of wanting the voice of God to stop because we can't tolerate it anymore, actually it's the voice that we want to hear speaking to us, both now and for eternity. Why? Well, the very simple answer is because of Jesus. 
right the way through the book of Hebrews, time and time again, we've seen that Jesus is greater and then there are all those people that he's greater than. We've seen that Jesus fulfills the whole of the Old Testament. We've seen that Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. And so it's all because of him. So let's have a look at Mount Zion. Let's have a a look at these verses about the second mountain. I don't know if you're into art, um, and I'm talking serious art, you know, great paintings that have been painted through the ages. But even if you're not really into art, quite a lot of the way that we think and the way that we sort of visualise biblical scenes has sort of been modelled by a lot of Western culture, and it just sort of sits there in our sort of cultural backdrop, if you like. And it's not really something that we can help. And sometimes when we open our Bibles, we, we almost need to make a conscious decision not to try and peer through things and look at biblical images through um, the kind of paintings that we may have seen. For centuries, Western art has portrayed heaven as some kind of ethereal place. Just look at the picture on your screen at the moment. This is a, a 16th century painting. And if you look, heaven is on the left and you get all those little fluttering cherubs flying around. And for some reason, Jesus, who has now ascended, is a baby again. I'm not quite sure what that is about. But anyway... Or you get these kind of famous paintings with the heavenly clouds and with with sort of angels. Quite often they have wings. Sometimes they're, they're quite serious and sometimes they're even dour. Just for a moment, try and ditch the cultural baggage as we get to verses 22 to 23. Let's try and look at this with how a first century Christian Jewish reader would have approached it. Heaven is not the place of the fluffy clouds and the angelic harps. But heaven is where God is already ruling and reigning. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. That God's rule that is already complete in heaven will also come to earth. God's eternal city, talked about in these verses, is where God's rule will be complete and total. Unlike the earthly Jerusalem that at this point was um, held by the Romans effectively. And so we find in Revelation 21, 21 to 23, it says, the 12 gates and 12 pearls, each made of a single pearl, the great street of the city, so he's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. And these angels, God's ministering spirits, think back to the early chapters of Hebrews where we saw um, and dealt with with the angels and their, their message. In verse 22 it says they are innumerable, they are without number, and they are festal, is the word that in the version I read it gives. Or if you've got an NIV in front of you, it talks about joyful assembly. That's a bit of a formal way of saying actually what's going on here. Put it slightly less formally. These are partying angels. These are angels that are in celebratory mood, constantly celebrating what God has done in Christ, constantly celebrating the new creation. Now, God is still judge, absolutely. The God of Sinai is the same God as the God of Mount Zion. But because of what Jesus has done, this is now a place of celebration, of cleansing, of purity, of righteousness, because we have become righteous through Christ. Luke 15, 7, Jesus talks about a celebration going on in heaven every time a sinner repents. And it's this same kind of language here, the celebration of the angels. 
The presence of God through Christ is not the place of dread, but the place of celebration. And so the choice of these two mountains is really one of eternal journeying. Thomas Long, a commentator on this passage, puts it like this. So the real question is not, where do you want to go today? The real question is, with whom will you travel? On the path marked Sinai, you travel on your own, and if you go to the mountain by yourself on your own strength, you will not escape the judgment. But if we listen to the voice speaking to us, the voice that in these last days has spoken to us by his Son, then we will follow into the heavenly tabernacle and offer to God an acceptable worship. So who are these words written for? And what is meant to be the consequence of them? Well, this is not necessarily about sort of conversion and finding that first relationship with Jesus. Think about the place of this in the book. It's right towards the end of Hebrews, and it's really about encouraging us to keep going, as Mike was talking about last week, of keeping this race of pressing forward, of keeping going to the final destination. And so in verse 25, it says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And then we get a whole um, section of warning again. Hebrews, repeatedly, we have these warning passages to encourage us to, to stay focused on Jesus, to stay focused in our journey with God. But what does it mean to refuse God? Well, it can mean at the start of, of the journey that we never get going, that we don't actually follow Jesus. But we can refuse God in our lives on a day-to-day basis, can't we? Every time we fall into sin, every time we get unjustly angry, every time we judge another's heart, every time we don't love our neighbours as ourselves, we, we refuse God's word over our life and we take ours. But I wonder... I wonder if sometimes we're in danger of trying to construct, if you like, a third mountain. A mountain that is neither Sinai nor Zion. I wonder whether in our own lives we've ever constructed our own versions of the gospel. And we could think, well, surely not. We wouldn't do that, would we? Claire's parents live in Florida and um, they used to live in a house that was quite near to a local nature reserve. And in this nature reserve, there were a number of constructed lakes. They weren't natural lakes. They, they'd been made. And if you've ever been to Florida, particularly when it's in the sort of the, the rainy season, when it rains, it really rains. And it sort of absolutely tips it down. And they have all these sort of lakes around to really capture this sort of temporary flood water that sort of um, pours out of the sky. And when these lakes had been dug out that were now the nature reserve, whoever had dug them out, they'd piled all the earth from these lakes onto one side. And then over time, this this huge pile of, of earth had grassed over. And so now it looks a bit like a natural hill. It's probably 70 to 100 feet tall. And um, it's the, the highest hill for, for quite some time in that area. And it got nicknamed by our nephews, Dinosaur Mountain. Um, dinosaur, because it looks like a dinosaur, and mountain, because it's the closest thing in that area to a mountain. Now, as human beings, we've liked to construct things since um, the dawn of time. Hills, yeah, sometimes. Towers, tall buildings. It's been going on since the dawn of time when Babel was constructed. Now, we might not be in the business of building towers at the moment. 
lockdown might not have got you so bored that you're actually building a hill in your garden, though who knows, a bit of excessive landscape gardening might not go amiss. But what about in our Christian life? What about trying to find a third mountain? Trying to make our own version of Christianity? Based not on what Christ has said, based not on what the writers of Scripture say, but based on our own ideas. You know, we live in a a postmodern world, or even a post-postmodern world, where truth becomes relativised, where actually the idea of things being absolutely true has largely sort of gone out of fashion in our culture. And it can be very easy to sort of adopt that into our Christian living. And then my journey with Christ can become about me and my experiences and what I feel about God. And we can find ourselves, if we're not careful, latching onto some aspects of God's character, but then putting on one side others. So we might find some of the aspect of God's love easy to to deal with. So we focus on that, but... Perhaps we don't like the idea of repentance, so that gets sort of hidden away a little bit. Or we might find the idea of God, God's justice over, over people being okay, but not my requirement to forgive and to keep forgiving. A couple of years back, I was listening to a relatively well-known preacher. Now, I'm not into naming or shaming other Christians, so I'm not going to say anything about them. But the talk they were giving was about growing as a person. And I remember sitting through this talk, and to start with, it all sounded okay. It was about um, reaching your potential as the person that God has called you to be. But then the more I listened, the more I started to think, actually, this is all about trying to do change without the gospel. There was no Jesus in this message. There was no cross in this message. There was no new creation. There was no being empowered by the Spirit. There was no being transformed as the Spirit does his work in us. It was effectively a self-help talk. Now, nothing wrong with a self-help talk, if that's what you've said you're going to set out to do. And, you know, if you're in business and those are the kind of things you do, then that, that can be quite a positive thing. But to say this is gospel, to say this is God, to say this is what the kingdom is about, and to not draw people to the foot of the cross to not journey to the wonder of the empty tomb, to not come to Pentecost and see the equipping of uh, the church to grow to be like Christ. To me, it puts us in danger of creating those kind of third mountain, an alternative way that actually doesn't go anywhere. Christian speaker and author Ravi Zacharias sadly passed away a few weeks ago. But I remember watching a talk that he gave a while ago, and it was, it was along these lines. It was basically any form of the gospel that bypasses the cross, that belittles the transformation, will actually shortchange us, and we will pay a heavy price for it. We could expand that into this passage. Any form of Christian teaching that doesn't take us up Mount Zion, but takes us up, if you like, some constructed third mountain, actually belittles the gospel and reduces what we're doing. Even in our world today, if I look at a real mountain and then compare it with Dinosaur Mountain, if I look even at Snowdon or one of the the peaks in the, the Lake District or even on a grander scale at the Himalayas or the Alps, the human attempt at a hill just pales into insignificance. How much more futile and ridiculous do our t- attempts to create a third way to God seem when measured against Mount Zion.
Are you listening to God this evening? Not your own version, not my own version, but what the scriptures reveal to us about Jesus, God's final and complete revelation of himself. And then we get to a final encouragement, verses 28 to 29. Therefore, this really important word that appears time and again in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, because of all this, in light of everything that has gone before, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. There are strong, unshakable roots to the kingdom of God. What an amazing encouragement tonight. When we journey life with Christ, when we ascend Mount Zion, it's not always going to be an easy race. There will be trials and hardships. There will be problems, and in this life there will be unanswered questions. But God is unshakable. We live in a world of increasing uncertainty at the moment, don't we? As as lockdown eases, as perhaps life slowly starts to return to something that looks vaguely like we're used to. Actually, we're just going into a period of greater uncertainty. 8.4 million people are currently on furlough. Job insecurity is on the rise. We don't know whether this virus will peak again later in the year. We just don't know these things. So where is our hope tonight? Where is our trust? Where is our confidence? Is it in the coming kingdom of Jesus, God's Messiah? Or will we vainly cling to some idea of a third mountain, whatever that might be? Revelation eleven, fifteen. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the good news is that we will reign with him. So the writer issues then a final challenge to come and worship. Come and offer acceptable worship through Jesus, the once for all sacrifice. Come and live life climbing Mount Zion, come journeying onwards to eternity with Christ. Keep pressing in, keep this race going to the new heaven and the new earth. Come and be encouraged this evening. I'm going to pray and then if you'd like to join us on our Zoom chat, we can pick up on any of these thoughts or or questions or issues that this chapter raises and we'll do that in a few moments. But let's pray as we close. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Lord, we thank you that your kingdom cannot be shaken. We thank you that in you we can have complete confidence. We thank you that no matter what happens in our earthly existence, that we are still climbing Mount Zion and that we will one day reign with you forever. Help to keep us encouraged as we keep moving forward in our faith in you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.